Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Over the horizon, new developments in decarbonising concrete. Thank you for joining um, the corner of the room where we're going to talk about the, the, the less sexy material that is concrete. I'm sure many of you have dragged yourself away from the timber stage, so thank you for coming here. Um, but we thought it was probably quite an important thing to talk about because it turns out we use quite a lot of it and it's, and it's pretty damaging to the environment. So. Um, Thank you for joining us and hopefully what you're about to hear is interesting and useful to you all. Um, before I introduce the speakers, I thought it was just worth saying a little bit about, um, about the topic and, and what the sort of, uh, we're going to do some sort of contracting around the, the topic that what we're going to narrow in on today. Um, we're going to talk about concrete, not other materials. We're not going to talk about what you could swap it out for and things like that. Plenty of people talk about that elsewhere. If you are using it, what should you do with it? We're going to talk about what you should do today on projects in the here and now. There's a really great talk happening at 12.15 here again, talking about what you should be able to do in a few years' time. There's some big innovations that are kind of on the horizon, um, but we're just going to talk about the boring stuff that you can do here and now on a project that's live on site today. And we're going to sort of frame all this in a UK context. Um, most of you probably have at least some work in the UK. Most of the things we talk about we think are probably replicable globally anyway, um, but it just helps sort of focus the discussion today. Um, we're going to ask, as always, send us questions on Slido as you go. There'll be sort of 15 minutes or so for Q&A at the end. But if you could try and keep the, the discussion within those sort of three areas, that would really help us just keep us on, keep us on track. Um, I'm joined... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Will. I'm Head of Climate Action at the Institution of Structural Engineers. Um, my, sort of, my interest in this topic comes from the fact that we've got 30,000-ish members, and almost all of them, bar none, design with concrete at at least some point in their working lives. Even those who work on lots of like timber projects and domestic scale projects, they still have to come into contact with this. So for me, what we do about the grey stuff is quite an important issue. Um, I'm joined by three top brains in this area from across the industry. Um, and between the three of us, we're going yeah, to take you through this discussion. We're going to talk about cement first, and then we're going to talk about concrete itself afterwards. Um, so if you'd be happy to sort of introduce yourselves and then we'll, we'll get started. Nushin, do you want to go first? So I'm Nushin Hosravi. I'm Sustainable Construction Manager at Mineral Product Association. Uh, we are representative of concrete and cement manufacturers in the UK. And my role is uh, to engage with the practitioners uh, to understand their challenges about concrete specification and how to, we can respond in terms of sustainability, as well as working with our member companies to develop the sustainability strategy and work on various topics like low carbon circularity and even social outcomes. So I'm, ooh, blimey, very loud. So I'm Will Hawkins. I'm a lecturer in structural engineering design at the University of Bath. I've got a background as a structural designer of buildings, um, but I've been in research for many years now. I've been involved in research projects on the structural optimization and embodied carbon reduction of concrete structures. And more recently, I've kind of diversified into looking at the UK um, construction and the embodied carbon characteristics of that, mapping um, embodied carbon in, in the UK, um, and also starting to look at um, more widely decarbonisation of the construction industry. Okay, let's, let's see how loud I am. I think that's okay. Uh, I'm David Watson. I'm a structural engineer and technical director at AKT2. We are uh, a firm of civil and structural engineers in London. We also have offices in Manchester, Cambridge, Copenhagen. I'm very much interested in this discussion because concrete, as we've said, is an incredibly useful material. 
It's a material that we use in almost all of our designs. I'm excited because there are real opportunities for us to use it far more efficiently and through our decisions influence the future trajectory of the transformation of concrete uh, that we use within our projects. Thanks, David. So we're going to start by talking about cement and then we're going to move on to talking about concrete. And the reason why we're doing this is for those of you who aren't aware, within concrete, cement is the bit that makes up most of the emissions. So it's probably 70 to 80% of the emissions of a block of concrete will come from the cement. Um, the rest of it's your aggregate, which gravel, sand, things like that, water, um, and a few admixtures. So it's, so it's mostly in that cement. So it's really important that we start by talking about what we can do with cement. And so maybe, Nushin, if you'd like to start, I think we should start with the question of when people make Portland cement, clinker, as we call it, are, are there options out there? Do we just have to take the one send one mix the one sort of Portland cement that's on offer or can we you know speak to different suppliers about different options? Yes so um, I should probably mention that UK concrete or cement manufacturing has decarbonized a lot since 1999 uh, for example like 43 percent carbon reduction has already happened through different levers and they uh, concrete uh, industry set a roadmap to decarbonize by 2050 and defines different levers. And some of them are specific to cement manufacturing, like uh, fuel switching, like uh, electricity and transport and using different uh, kind of uh, levers. And for example, fuel switching, uh, in the roadmap there is the estimation of 16% reduction of carbon emission just by using stuff like biomass, like uh, waste drift fuels and uh, other alternatives in cement production. And it, this is something already happening within the industry. A lot of uh, cement manufacturers have already switched uh, some percentage of their fuel to other alternatives. Also electricity, most of the cement manufacturing uh, are already using uh, Rigobacks, a renewable energy resource uh, electricity, and they are looking at using other um, alternative transports uh, like rails or look, uh, looking at electric vehicles. So if you look at different cement uh, EPDs probably from different manufacturers, you might see uh, slight differences in their uh, cement EPD. Uh, but as a sort of general um, carbon reduction and throughout the UK concrete, uh, MPA also produced a sector EPD for cement. Uh, which uh, we published a new one last year, which showed the general re reduction uh, from five years ago, for example. Um, so that can be an indicative of sort of what's the normal industry cement value for the UK that should yeah. be acceptable. Okay, so, so things are happening to reduce the carbon content of cements and some manufacturers more so than others, and you can find that out by looking at EPDs. Yes. yes okay, yeah. so, so that's, that's decarbonisation of cement itself. The other thing we're used to doing in, in our concrete mixes is to replace some of that cement with other things. Um, so before we talk more broadly about all the different things you can replace it with, we have to tackle the elephants in the room. GGBS is an acronym a lot of you will have heard of, and I wonder if David, if you'd just sort of start us off by yeah. giving us a bit of the sort of situation on, on GGBS as a cement replacement. So we've been talking there about cement, which is the principal binder that we, we use, and that is made through essentially heating, calcining limestone. It will give us some reactive oxides that when we get the recipe right, will bind the aggregate together. 
GGBS, or ground granulated blast furnace slag, is coming from a completely different source. It's coming as a byproduct of blast furnace steel making, principally. And it's giving us some of those useful oxides, but from a different process. And it, and it is a byproduct, and for a long time, it had reasonably low economic value. It is a little bit different to cement. It gives us some different properties. It can help, help with certain aspects of durability, and it can also help in reducing the heat that is generated in concrete. And that can be useful for very large sections. So, so in certain circumstances, you want it for technical reasons? Exactly. For technical reasons, it, it helps. It is a little bit different. And one of the reasons why it's become very popular in our pursuit of reducing emissions is that it has, I'm not going to go into the numbers too much, but maybe a tenth of the embodied carbon as currently accounted of cement. And we can use it in quite high cement replacement values. It will generally reduce the strength gain. So what will tend to happen is that the overall binder content will go up. And this is something we have to be really careful of. And if we start pushing the GGBS replacement levels, the overall binder content will go up. So the overall demand across the industry as a whole could be pushed up. What's good on that project isn't necessarily good for the industry as a whole. And that comes to the final point that's really, really important, is that there's not that much of it. Okay? We don't make steel in the quantities that we make concrete in. And even really with best estimates, we're talking somewhere between 10 and 15% of our cementitious demand can be satisfied from GGBS. So if we're using more than that, we know that we're diverting it to a project and it will have to be made up with OPC elsewhere. So it's really the scarcity of that GGBS and the fact that it isn't projected to increase in the future. Blast furnace steel making is, is in the medium to short term on a route to planned obsolescence, so the availability will go down. It isn't the lever that is going to give us and allow us to achieve this decarbonization across the industry. Yeah. So, so, so in short, the, the GGBS that is produced already is being used. It is being used. So yeah. if you ask for more of it, you get a bit more, but somebody else has to get a bit less. So it's exactly. sort of whack-a-mole. Kind of exactly. Effect. Yeah, yeah, okay. So so does have uses, technical does, uses. for sure. Does, on a project scale, replace cement and therefore reduce the carbon footprint of your concrete mix. Yep. But if you're doing this at high volumes, would come at the cost of somebody else's carbon footprint going back up. Exactly. So on a global scale, and and... On a global scale, things would stay about the same or could, could get marginally worse. So there's a bit of a disconnect between sort of life cycle accounting, which looks at a project, yeah. versus the sort of global emissions picture. I think we will see that across a lot of materials, that when we, when we compare what is best necessarily to reduce the emissions for a particular project, that can often be in tension against what is best for the industry as a whole or demand uh, through the industry as a whole. Yeah, okay. So... Lots of science in there, so do ask questions on Slido if it didn't all quite resonate. Um, and we've got a note coming out on this topic at the end of the month, hopefully, in some sort of format to try and bring a bit of clarity to this. But I think so can I add something about the early yeah, age yeah, yeah, strengths yeah. of Please. GGBS? So yeah, you're definitely right that the, um, adding some of SCMs and GGBS, SCMs, supplementary cementitious materials, will have an impact on the early age of concrete. But uh, there are ways around it that you can overcome that. So it's a different sort of planning and program of the construction you need to consider for getting lower carbon solutions. Because, for example, for GGBS, if you design for 56 days strengths, you will achieve the strengths that you need. And you don't need to increase the binder content then. 
so um, uh, the, the using of low carbon concrete or SCMs might need a little bit more thinking mm -hmm. and more collaboration around the construction program to so, make it happen. So I think that brings us on to the question of what, what can you do? Because I think you know what we're hearing is you can't just say, oh, replace half of it with GGBS and put your fingers in your ear and somebody else will take care of it, right? There's more dialogue needed with the supply chain yep. and there's other things you can do within your spec that would help. And so you mentioned, you know, um, relaxing your early age strength requirements, aiming for a 56-day rather than a 28-day strength would mean that you can get away with putting less cement in there in the first place. Um, Will, you wanted to talk about sort of other, um, other things you can do within your, within your spec, other alternatives. So what, what else is there that people could do today? Yeah, I was going to focus a little bit on the cement or the cementitious content. So we've got the Portland cement from the cement kiln, which is the real baddie in terms of carbon. We can blend that with other things like GGBS. That together makes the cementitious content, which is crucial for making concrete work. There's other things we can do to reduce the amount of that within the concrete. So we also have um, aggregate and we have water and admixtures. The aggregate and water typically don't take up much in terms of the embodied carbon. Um, there are other potential issues of water scarcity and where that aggregate comes from can have e ecological impacts. But it really, they're, they're both really important for determining how much cement you need. So one thing which is really important is the aggregate itself. What size distribution, how much gaps between the aggregate do you get left? And if you get the size distribution of that aggregate spot on, and when you get the shape spot on, you don't need much cement to make a really, really strong concrete. And by distribution, you're talking about having a, not just one big size of gravel and one small, but maybe having a few intermediate in between. Yeah. So it's a bit of a family of gravel sizes. It's a really nice little geometric problem. If you take a piece of concrete and, and saw it in half and polish it up, you'll see a cross-section through all that aggregate. And you can really get a feel for how if you have smaller and smaller and smaller pieces, you'll be filling that void and not having to put cement in there. So that's kind of one for the concrete manufacturers. But when it comes to design and specification, the strength of the concrete that you need will also be related to the cementitious content. So we should be making sure that we don't over-specify strength. And that particularly comes down to structures where, particularly horizontal spanning structures or foundations, there's a, only a very small link between the strength of the concrete and the volume of concrete that we actually need for those particular structures. And often we over-specify. We use a mix that we consider to be a standard strength when actually we could get away with a lower strength. We wouldn't need very much more concrete at all, but it would have a much lower cementitious content and that would also reduce the embodied carbon. So that's a really important thing we can do. Another thing that you just touched on was the strength gain. So we typically specify a 28-day strength of concrete. That's just an industry standard. Um, but concrete continues to harden after that. The rate at which it does that depends on the cementitious blend of cement and a few uh, complex chemistry things. Um, but, but it's fairly well understood, right? There's some curves in the standards that tell you if it's this at one month, it's this at two it's well months understood, and so on. Yeah. Right? And it will continue hardening forever. So the longer you can wait until you need that strength, the less cement you will need. So if you can work from an early stage with the concrete supplier and with the contractor to schedule your building, depropping, removal of, of formwork carefully so that you can justify a 56-day strength or even more um, wherever you can, you're going to save a lot of cement and, and embodied carbon as well. So um, strength gain and um, sort of maximum amount of cement in the mix, they both sound like things where you, you really can't do this in isolation as a designer because, of course, strength gain depends on project program, it depends on when 
you need to be able to put props on a slab to prop the paw at the level above, for example. So you've got to close that loop, right? You've got to speak to the contracting team. Exactly. Can I just add a couple of things? I think admixtures are worth mentioning mm -hmm. in that a lot, for a lot of history, we've used cement as the main thing that we use to change the behavior of concrete. But we can now use, increasingly, admixtures to modify those properties. Two really important ones. One are the superplasticizers, or the water-reducing admixtures. They sound really great, superplasticizers, but what they allow us to do is reduce, for, for a level of workability, reduce the amount of cement, which is good. You know, we don't have to over-specify that cement. Another is that there are admixtures that are available that will improve the early strength gain. So ideally, let's look for opportunities to not require early strength, but the reality is in many instances we need it. Yep. Uh, and we don't have to just influence that by putting more cement into the concrete. We can use current uh, admixtures, and there are those that are being developed to help with that as well, but that's more for the future. And Nushin, does all of this exist within the standards right now? Are there changes coming? I mean, I know I said we're going to talk about today. Maybe we extend that to within the next 12 months, say. What, what's happening with standards to allow more of this? So um, standards are already letting you use admixtures, and um, there are many guides, like we have a specifying sustainable concrete as one of our main guidance about letting, uh, telling people how to use the right aggregate grading and everything. And um, eventually, the manufacturer of concrete, uh, they would know how to optimize, how to optimize the mix. But there are limitations within the standards. Yeah. For example, there is the limitation on minimum cement content to assure the durability of the concrete. And uh, even if they want to optimize more than that, uh, the standard is not allowing that to happen. So that's one of the things that we are trying to work with the standard committee. Uh, to um, clarify where these minimum cement content requirements are coming. I hope people can it's hear. It's quite ominous, isn't it? I mean, this is... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're going to get beamed up in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on, please. And uh, also looking if there is any uh, potential to relax some of these requirements because the concrete standard was written like more than 20 years ago. And the mm. cement quality was different at the time. We were not using that mixture as much. Yep. So and now we are making concrete more optimized. We are using that mixture better. We have better cement quality. So probably a lot of these limitations can be relaxed. So we are with discussion with VSI committee to uh, kind of understand where are the potential relaxations that can happen. It might not happen in the next 12 months because the committees are a bit slow, <laughs> but next revisions probably yeah. will happen. And, and you've got um, an update coming out at the end of this year on BSA 500, right? And so that allows you to, what is it you can do with cement when that comes out that you can't currently do? Yes, yeah, that, that's actually a very big opportunity that's is happening right now and in November when the standard is out it will be like a very uh, great chance for everybody to specify new types of cement. So um, this is basically uh, mixing SEM1 or Portland cement with limestone and adding GGBS3. We call it multi-component cement. <clears throat> uh, so in the previous version of the standard you could just use binary compositions like using cement with one another supplementary material. But now it can be three components in the GGBS or fly ash, limestone, and SEM1. And the important thing is the SEM1 with limestone 
um, is very easy to make and its suppliers are ready to kind of supply it as a standard product instead of someone. So immediately you will get a huge reduction in terms of the scale of use of cement across the country. And this happens already in some countries. Yes, right? I think yeah, Germany's yeah. been doing this for some years now. Probably, yeah. I don't know which countries exactly, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can, it's already happening. So, um, and it will, uh, I think the estimation is about 4 million tons of reduction of carbon per year just by adding some limestone yeah. to cement can so you, so you could take David's uh, sort of 10 to 15% GGBS that would be maybe a global fair share assuming it was going to be shared equally but on top of that you could then add in what another 10% or so 10 to as limestone so 10 yeah. to 20% as limestone yes so that would roughly give you another 10 to 20% off the carbon footprint of your cement right yes, which exactly. is of the order of, you know it's not a 70% lower thing but it's a real carbon saving today because it doesn't suffer from that whack-a-mole thing I mentioned before. This is limestone. You're not using somebody else's limestone. Yeah, it's abundant, available in the yeah. UK limestone, and you just need to grind it to add it to the I think I think we'll see that as a pattern as we go through the discussion, that there isn't one big step. Yes. What we can do now is not one big step that will get us where we need to be. It'll be an increment, or it'll be the accumulation of a, a number of incremental steps. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you put all these steps together, do you have a feel for... Uh, what kind of reduction you can get against business as usual if you've got the time to go through the spec properly? Oh, that would be giving it away. We're going to come on to that when we talk about the, okay, the elements. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, so, let's, okay, so let's move on then to talk about that's using less cement and changing the way we make cement. And there's lots of little levers we can pull and they add up relatively quickly by the time you've done five or six things, I'd say. Um, you're then putting that, you're then mixing that with aggregate, and you mentioned aggregates before, um, sand and gravel, water, few admixtures, probably some reinforcing steel, and that gives you concrete, mm. right? It's not cement that we stand up on, it's concrete we stand up on. So then we've, we've optimized the cement that goes into the concrete, but presumably there's a whole load of steps we can take to then optimize how much concrete we use in the first place. Yeah. So that we, that's a sort of compound effect, right? If you do both of these, you get savings on both of them. So I don't know, maybe David, if you could start from a, on the scale of a whole building, whole what building. should we be doing yeah. to optimize our use of concrete in the first place? Well, there are some big moves that can be made when we talk about the scale of a whole building. And, and all of this is focused upon really using less material, but achieving the same performance. And, and that's the message here really is, let's not think about this per kilo or per cubic meter, concrete per kilo or cubic meter, but by per unit of stiffness or strength, the function that we want from the concrete because we can achieve the same thing with less material, but it will have consequences. So one of the important things, and this is a, a design team-wide decision, we need to talk about things like grid. So the, the spacing between columns. Do we really need these very long spans? And in many instances, we don't. So taking things back to a first principles approach and saying, what, what is the impact of this decision? So reducing the spans is going to be helpful. It will then allow us to also, in all things being equal, reduce the floor uh, zones, which when we talk about elements is going to be of use to us. We can also look at things like loading. Um, and by reducing the overall material, we'll reduce necessarily the foundations. So what we do in the superstructure will be multiplied in the substructure. So I think at a building scale, it is about looking at the planning of the building and questioning, do we need such long spans, given that floor slabs are going to be related to a square or a, a cube of that distance? It's not a, if you double the span, you're not doubling. You're, you're going to the, the cube or the, or the square. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and with that in place, that then gives us more opportunity to look at optimization of the elements. 
And, and so before we move on to elements, just to clarify, I mean, it sounds like most of the advice you're giving there is kind of agnostic of material, just, yeah. just to be really clear. This it is true of any structural material, right? Yeah. If you get your shorter spans, you're going to, you know, it's not half the span, it's half the material, half the span will be far bigger reduction still. Right? And, and it can work the other way, that if you have a, a given span, it's then about looking at what the appropriate floor zone is. And that then needs to be considered against overall building height, cladding areas, planning envelopes, and so on. But, you know, it isn't just that long span is necessarily going to be more uneconomic. It's just that with that longer span, we tend to have to work with the same floor zone. And so it's pushed yes. to be yeah. more yeah. uneconomic. Yeah. Okay. So, so that brings us on to elements. Yeah, I think before we move on, there it's just a couple of other elements to do with the overall massing of the building that can have a really big impact on the amount of concrete that you consume. And the big one I want to mention is basements. Mm. Because as you dig down, you need to have retaining walls. You need to have you know, the cap along the retaining wall, you have extra floors, it's all concrete and it can be really, really hungry in terms of the embodied carbon. So, you know, if you can avoid having deep basements, um, then that's always going to save you material and that's going to be concrete, right? Because that's just the way Generally, that we build yeah. basements today. Yeah, somebody highlighted me once, they said, well, if, if the facade of this building was a one meter thick wall of concrete, would you think that was a, a good idea? Mm. And, and it feels, and like, that feels materially intensive, but that's the standard of what goes into the ground on a deep yeah. basement, right? And you don't see it. No. But and you don't see I, it. What I would say, and this is a bit more of a subtle point, and it goes back to this idea of systems versus projects, that on a project basis, building more basement will generally result in more material. But if that building in that location, let's say next to a very uh, high capacity public transport interchange, if that basement allowed that building to achieve a high level of density and, and use that public transport, then at a system scale, yeah. it actually is justifiable. Yeah, and the same so, is true of taller buildings, right? Exactly. There will be instances where actually you've already got great public transport. You can, you know, to, to add more office capacity locally within walking distance would be of greater benefit exactly. in the wider system. So yeah, acknowledge that. But, but it is worth understanding, isn't it, that if you are going to go down with a big basement, you're going to buy a whole lot of material in there to do it, that you've got to understand the carbon footprint of that. And that's an opportunity for... True. This is quite a subtle point, but if you do have those basements, don't unnecessarily increase the floor-to-floor -floor height in the basement because we're resisting all of that pressure from the ground. If we increase the span, we need more material. Yes. So let's really question about what do we push to the edges of the basement where we want to restrain the wall. Let's try to cut down the floor-to-ceiling height. Okay, so lots we can do on the, the concept scale stuff. Will elements. Talk to us. Uh, people here are going to want to hear about your floors that you've been building, I think. So why don't we start with those? Yeah. Talk about the acorn. So I think the story is that the way that we imagine concrete buildings, the way that we design them, the way that we teach design, the way that we build them is a symptom of a culture and an attitude that prioritizes minimal labor and high, high speed of construction over the consumption of materials. So we, we imagine that floors have to be straight. We imagine that everything has to be blocky and rectangular and solid. But that's just because, it, because it's, it's quicker, right? It's quicker. It's easier to build. It's very easy to dig a hole and fill it with concrete. Um, but now we're obviously having to move forward towards thinking more about the importance of the quantity of that material that we need. And it turns out there's massive scope to have the same structural performance with much, much less concrete. And actually, we saw that um, in the kind of mid-post-war in the 20th century when materials were relatively more expensive and there was lots of fantastic innovation in construction systems, things like coffered slabs, waffle slabs, um, beautiful vaulted systems where they're really trying to use less material. And that has come through in the research 
um, in recent decades as well. So, so I know uh, my PhD was about optimizing concrete floor systems. And actually, if you go from systems that act in bending, so straight beams and slabs, to things that are curved and follow the line of forces, you can save up to around 70% of the material. And that's before you've optimized that material, which, as we said, maybe you're looking at maybe 50% more. So you're really taking a lot of embodied carbon out. So what I did was fairly forward-looking, but there are systems that are starting to come through, particularly with precast systems. And in fact, just the humble um, hollow core slab, which is pre-tensioned, which makes it a lot more efficient, and it's got voids in it, which takes away concrete that's not working very hard, can be significantly more materially efficient um, than the kind of slabs that, we're, that we just kind of refer to as, yeah. as default. Um, so it's always worth optioneering, I think. And it doesn't have to be wacky. It yeah. could just be a few well-placed beams. It could be arguing for a slightly increased structural depth. It could yeah. be working with the services to achieve that. And you can really save a lot of material. And I, I mentioned earlier that I was quite in inspired that there's an opportunity for this to happen now. Because for a long time, I think these options were presented and they were generally rejected. It'll be 25 mil deeper on the floor zone, 50 mil deeper perceived increase in program. And so they just weren't being looked at in the way that we're now looking at them. We're seeing in projects the use of Holocaust slabs, double T units, trough slabs. They, they are slightly deeper, generally, but there are ways around it. And I think we need to really re-engage again to look at this holistically and not just throw these options out in preference yeah. to perceived speed and minimum floor zone. It's funny in a way, isn't it? Because what the technologies we're talking about are not, they're nothing new and people yeah. would, I mean, the UK's covered in this stuff and for the most part it's 40, 50, 60 years old. So it's a sort of, you know, bringing that back that's actually being called for on the basis of material efficiency. And, and you know, the MPA's got pages and, you know, books and books of guidance on this stuff, right? Yes. So it's out there and it's tried and tested and people can go to Concrete Sensors website yes. download this, Concrete is that right? Yes, yes. Um, so lots of, you know, lots of precedent and exactly. we know what we're doing, Exactly. Right? Yes, yeah, we have a lot of guide about uh, efficient design and uh, concrete frame design and how you can consider waffle slabs and look at even loading and how things can be designed differently, basically. If you look at our website, you find a lot of the guidance there. And also, I think generally we are working hard on lowering carbon of concrete and we are working on benchmarking, understanding what's a typical low carbon concrete in the UK. But we shouldn't lose the sight at the project level because you can use a very low carbon concrete, but in a really large volume, then it will yeah. defeat the purpose. Nothing. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. So it's important the product standard in terms of uh, concrete material should be aligned with projects like kind of value and standard, those two should work together to give the best solution, basically. And, and the more demand for these systems, the more we're going to optimize their availability. You know, there was a time where that you could, you could hire forms for waffle, waffle slabs and rib slabs easily. They were just, it was just part of construction. We've moved away from it. And so, you know, mentioning 60, 70% when we get into really properly form efficient structures, but, but even a trough slab or, or a hollow rib can achieve 25, 30% reduction, maybe even a little more of material. And, and it isn't actually that unusual, right? It isn't, it isn't that special. Yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning that because concrete is such a dense material, 
concrete buildings, relatively the self-weight is, is important, yeah. relatively more important than a more lightweight steel or, or particularly a timber structure. So anything that you're, any of that mass that you're taking away through a more efficient and lower carbon solution is going to trickle down through your columns and into your foundations, yeah. Yeah. which again is a pet peeve of mine, the amount of material that goes into foundations that we can't see. Um, we've got a research project at the moment looking at piles. Mm. I've worked on projects where it took 80 um, concrete trucks to fill a single pile. <laughs> Absolutely outrageous amount of concrete. You could turn that into a four-story building yeah. for one pile. Um, and so, you know, we need to start just thinking about that and optimizing it. And yeah. we've shown that even if you just change the shape of a pile, or even better, take the middle out, and there are contractors starting to look yep. at that, yep. um, you can save vast amounts of material. You know, underground is as important as yep. above ground. And, so and then reusing foundations. So we, we now have available to us performance-based design approaches that allow us to do things that we couldn't do previously with the prescriptive, deemed to satisfy, semi-empirical approaches. We can make explicit predictions within a range on settlement and behavior, actual performance of foundations. And this opens up a whole range of reuse. So we can, we can use what is already there as well. Um, and make sure it's not wasted in situ. Yeah. And, and, and I think if we had more time, we should probably spend another 15, 20 minutes just talking about reusing concrete, but yeah. we don't, unfortunately. And if we don't get any audience questions, then I'll get told off. Okay. So as we've only got 10 minutes to go, before I do audience questions, I guess to summarize that whole discussion, it strikes me that there's four things. There's get the concept right, mm -hmm. whether that's to do with height, basement, spans, whatever. There's think beyond flat slabs when it comes to elemental design, so that's kind of maybe next. And then once you get into the spec, there's how can you get the lowest carbon cement in the first place, and then how do you optimize the use of that cement through the various things you've said. And actually, if you can do all four of those things, you can do all of those today. They're all standardized, or some of the things you mentioned are going to be standardized very soon. Um, and, it, and it's all fairly normal construction. We've just forgotten how to do a lot of it. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a toolkit to take away onto your projects. We should, we should get a couple of these questions out. I'm just gonna quick fire one or two of them. Um, and I'm, I don't know who wants to go first. So question, first question I hear that's got the most likes is why can't concrete from demolished buildings be recycled into more concrete? Lucian? So um, it can be recycled. There is um, basically all the demolished concrete um, can be used. But the standard at the moment has a limit of 20% using recycled concrete within concrete. But it doesn't mean that the rest of it is going to waste. It's, going, it's being used in other applications within the construction. And the reason for not using more than that at the moment is uh, balancing carbon and circularity, basically, because if you use more recycled concrete aggregate in, in concrete, then you might end up uh, using more cement because there is more prosity of that aggregate and um, then you need, uh, it absorbs more water and you need, basically your carbon of concrete might go higher. Uh, so that's a barrier in terms yeah. of using 100% uh, recycled concrete within concrete. And, and I should say that if you come back here at quarter past 12, one of the speakers is gonna talk about technology that's being tested at the moment to recycle it in much higher proportions and turn it back into a sort of original yeah. so there's stuff on the horizon for that as well. Could I, could I just add a very subtle point on that? That this uh, You mentioned earlier, I think, Will, that concrete is gaining strength throughout its life. So a way of reusing the concrete in another life, but in situ, is to take account of that concrete strength increase over time, because it, it is hydrating, and so you know, 
there are percentages that can be applied if you look to the relevant guidance for concrete strength increase, and you can look to justify that through testing. So it's a, that's a bit more of a subtle way of reusing the concrete yeah, in, yeah. in situ. And, and actually, this is something we were talking about before, Will, was a project that one of your PhD students is working on looking at reusing existing concrete columns and how much spare capacity in there is, is typically in there for like a 60-year-old concrete column. You say it's, it's an extraordinary amount, right? It's, it's an extraordinary amount. We, we think that an average column in a building from the 1960 is probably only working at about 20% of its full load. And there's so many reasons for that. The concrete that was delivered to site in the first place was stronger than the designers thought it was. It's since been gaining lots and lots of strength. It was over-designed for various different reasons. The codes have changed, and it all kind of adds up. So, so in situ, there's a lot of potential for reuse. Yeah. I think there's also potential for reuse at the component level. And that's another advantage of kind of off-site manufacture. Things like hollow-core slabs, but also people are developing um, more structurally efficient systems as well that can be put together and then disassembled and reused. And as long as that concrete is in the right environment and is treated well, it's always going to be getting stronger. So yeah. we should be moving towards that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Good. Where, so, um, slightly different track. Where does our GGBS come from in the Where does UK? it come from? Some of it comes from UK uh, blast furnaces, uh, and some of it is imported. Um, sources range from Spain, Germany, maybe a little further afield, Japan. Japan. It, it does vary year to year depending on what is available. I think. And do we know roughly what the proportion two, is? Two thirds maybe comes from UK production of what we demand. But it does vary year on year and with the blast furnaces increasing and reducing their production, that's, that's a reasonably fluid. But it is a, it's a globally traded commodity, yeah, right? It it's, is, um, yeah. So it's not all sort of homegrown. It's not the right no, word, but... No. no. Um, somebody has asked, and it's got quite a few thumbs up, so I better ask it, can I get... This has been aimed at you, David, but I think it's probably a question for all of you. Can I get your thoughts on pulverized fly ash, PFA, and or other replacements to cement? Okay. So briefly, what, el yeah, what else? So... Um, the other SCMs might be calcined clay, uh, which uh, clay are abundant and available, and uh, there are many projects going on using clay. Uh, we at MPA, we are looking at reclaimed clay, so we, we like to use waste streams as much as possible as, a, as supplementary materials. So we are doing a project to see what are the sources of reclaimed clay, like from demolition, uh, from bricks, and anything else that we can use in concrete. Uh, and it will come uh, to the market in a few years, it's not again the next 12 months. Uh, but it, uh, I'm sure there will be some imports of calcine clay happening soon as well. Another thing is, um, so obviously fly ash is coming from coal industry, and the coal industry within the UK is not really working. Uh, but there are stockpile fly ash available, means uh, fly ash that's uh, kind of basically stored somewhere and not used. And uh, the UK uh, Quality Ash Association is doing a project on seeing if we can use that stockpile fly ash, uh, which actually a very large quantity is 100 million tons, and about half of that will be might be cementitious has cementitious properties. Uh, but it's so, about so when we say available, we mean the stockpiles exist. Yes, exactly. But, but we still want to work on how we actually get it out there and use it, and that's the research. Yes, yes, and, and the consistency might be a bit of issue. So you should uh, find the right consistency, and then what will be the impact on durability of concrete? So it takes a bit of time to do all the testing to assure that it's the right uh, has the right characteristics to be used in concrete. The initial research has shown it, it's fine. 
it doesn't have any problem, uh, but we need to do more testing to be able to offer it as a sort of in the market as large scale, but it will be available. And, and, and I think that, that point though that you made about the fact that you know, the UK is not burning coal, therefore we're not producing PFA at the moment, yes. is quite important. And I suppose in a way it's the reason why GGBS has become a go-to yes. cement replacement, because we are still making blast furnace steel, yes. but we're not burning coal. Um, you mentioned calcine clay. So one of the questions here is when will calcine clay limestone cements reach the market? Do you want to sort of touch on LC3 and calcine clays and when it's yes. coming? Yes, yeah, so um, I think it depends on the, each manufacturer in terms of if they want to import it or if they have uh, in-house research going on. Uh, I think probably soon, I don't have exact time scale, uh, they might be able to offer it as an import, but as I said, there is clay in the UK as well. Yeah. So uh, it's good if we can develop that local, as MPA, we are working on that reclaimed clay or kind of other projects like HS2 are looking at London clay, for example. So it's better if we can uh, find the right source of clay locally and offer it to the market. But it's, 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 it's probably worth, and we said that we're going to be UK, but ex expanding a little bit because it is being used, calcine clay is being used as a component in cement blends other in, in other countries elsewhere in the world. Um, and it's, it's a commercially available product. The, the, main, the main benefit that we see on the calcine clay front is that it is an alternate primary product. It isn't coming from another process which is necessarily high intensity, high emissions. It is a new way of making a primary product. Um, and it will necessarily have a lower emissions because we're not releasing directly the CO2 that we release when we calcine limestone. Yeah. And so if we can support a transition to it, support people in looking for sources, viable sources within the UK, which do exist, we just need to find them and, and start to make the transition, there's a really strong demand signal that we can set to encourage development in that area. And if you ask if you keep on asking, you'll find that it, it is going to be possible now, really, or very, very short well, term. Well, people have built in it in other countries. Yeah, in the UK. So, as we said, it may well be imported for a time, but that's going to help build uh, that demand signal to make the transition. And what, so, so if, there are, if somebody in this room is thinking, actually, I've got a project, we want to do something a bit different as a trial on a bit of the concrete, you know, I don't know what it would be, a crane base, or maybe it's a bit of side or something, yeah. and they did want to try using LC3, limestone, calcine, clay, cement, what, where should they go? Like, what should be their first port of call? Do they ring up the MPA? No, they should talk to their manufacturer. That's what we always um, encourage, early engagement with the manufacturer of concrete, and to talk to them, see what options they can uh, offer. Maybe. It can be that they have a lot of GGBS and they can offer GGBS at the time, or it can be that they can import calcine clay. And I think it's very important to have that conversation at earliest stage with the manufacturers to understand what's the option at that local kind of project location that they can offer. Uh, I think there's just one more important principle, and apologies for people who understand this already. I'm sure you guys do, but... Um, Every supplementary cementitious material, so GGBS, fly ash, calcine clay, they all have different levels of reactivity. Mm. And that limits the proportion of the Portland cement that you can replace. So GGBS is really good because it's very reactive and we can go up to 80, 85%. Um, calcine clay is less reactive, fly ash less reactive, and all the way down to limestone, which is basically not reactive, but still we can have 5-10%. So I think it's important to remember that you know, um, all these different solutions we should be utilizing, but there's limits to how far we can push and 
going to 100% um, OPC replacement is a, is a whole different uh, question. So I think if I, if I, to go back to those, because we're kind of out of time now, but to go back to those four points I made before, it sounds like actually the first two, which is getting the concept right and a sort of approach to elemental design that's not just flat slabs, that's stuff that can be carried out within a design team, speaking with the wider, you know, all the different disciplines and so on. But actually the second, the other two points, which is about lower carbon cement and alternatives to cement and how you specify it, just to sort of reiterate the point, you can't do that in isolation, right? That's not something that the designer sits in a room and writes into a spec. That's something that you need to be engaged with the contractor and the supply chain as early as you can and closing that loop. What have you got that's available? What does that mean to my design? How do we make the most out of it and so on? And I think that's, you know, that, that sort of collaboration piece is really important here. Yep. Um, thank you all for giving me your morning to speak about this. If we can thank, thank our panelists in the usual way, that'd be appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.